Hello, and welcome to another episode of Goblin Lore. In this episode, we talk to Adrian Reynolds and Shivan Butt of the Commander and Podcast about a number of different topics relating to religion in magic, as well as specifically whether or not Gerard of the Weatherlight was a messiah figure in magic history. This is an episode that I personally have been really interested in for a long time. I'm very invested in the Weatherlight saga. It was one of the first points that I entered into magic lore. And so I really hope that you enjoy this discussion, which I think took a a lot of different turns and and a very different direction than I expected when I first wrote it. I apologize that the audio is a little bit clippy in some points due to my audio file being corrupted of, of my dialogue. I had to do some editing fixes that sort of synced up those areas and kept them from uh, being larger, long pauses. So if you'll forgive me for a couple of those little clicks and pops, I tried to get most of them, then I think you'll have a great adventure through this episode. So without any further ado, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the Goblin Lore Podcast. <laughs> Another episode, um, we have some very special guests today. I'm going to start you off by letting you know that my name is Hobbs Q. Um, I can be found on Twitter at Hobbs Q. And I would like to introduce you to both our guests and to my co-host. Hi, my name is Shivan Butt. You might know me as uh, ElectroTal or Gearboard Gears on the Twitters. I'm the co-host of the Commander in Podcast and I have things to say about magic. <laughs> I'm glad we decided to have you on then. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Adrian Reynolds. I am I'm a longtime magic player. I've been here since the beginning, and I am the ethnographer that is still in the middle of a longitudinal study that is ethnographic of the cultural actors in Magic the Gathering. So most people know me as Dreamtime Dream on Twitter. I had stopped making content while I was doing the study, but I'll probably start doing that again. Uh, I'm Alex Newman, one of the, the normal hosts of the cast, uh, and found on Twitter at Alexander Newem. <laughs> So today we're going to be talking with our guests about kind of the purpose of religion and messiah stories and also their relationship with Magic the Gathering. As we normally do with our burning inquiry, kind of add an intro question to get to know everybody. We want to kind of ask people, if you could start your own MTG religion, what would be one central tenet of it? Um, I'm going to start <laughs> off now because I already need uh, one of our co-hosts' help to make sure I am not butchering my tenant. Um, so, Adrian, um, I mine would be in the concept of mitzvah, but it would probably be more the lay version of doing good deeds versus just a commandment, because I know a mitzvah at its core is just one of the commandments. Well, all right. So the word mitzvah is actually not a singular meaning. Um, The word mitzvot is obligation more than Mm. any of the other things. And it is an obligation because of a contractual relationship. So uh, people may have heard Shivam's take on, on how Watsi treat God specifically. But one of the things that Watsi has a tendency to do in its published media is undermine White's 
concept of rules and order into something that inevitably led to fascism. So the idea of uh, reciprocal rules or reciprocal statuses of obligation to each other is not reflected in most conceptualizations of white or it's only reflected when it's in combination with green. So the thing about a mitzvah is, let's take a pleasant mitzvah. There is a mitzvot, a commandment that you, anything that you use to celebrate a ritual in Judaism, should you should make it a thing of beauty. And the thing of beauty just means to be within your means or within your own personal aesthetic. Uh, but if you're using it, like uh, there's a hand washing ceremony where you need a special cup because the way you have to say the prayer, it's got special handles to make it easier to say that prayer and hit the physical ritual. So it's a, a laver cup. So if you have a laver, you should make that the most beautiful laver to you that you can within either your capacity or your means so that when you're using it, it adds an extra moment of beauty to something that's really a rote blessing. The commandment, the mitzvah, the obligation, the blessing, those are all together, but it's the obligation. The contract we have with divine says do this blessing. The terms of the contract are make it beautiful when you do it. The effect of a mitzvah is some days you may not be feeling very close to God, but at least you have a thing of beauty in your hand and you and God worked on that thing of beauty together. That's the real thing. The, the concept of an obligation in America, especially in individualization, is received as a compulsion as opposed to a willing reciprocal agreement. Because there's also all sorts of mythology in Judaism about God owing us things and not always understanding humans and so doing it wrong. So there's a lot of words that do not get communicated unless you're inside the religion. So if you want mitzvot to be one of your tenets, maybe the best way to think of it is for every, ob for every commandment, for every deed that has to be done, there has to be something that benefits both, well, all three really, the human, the commute, well, human is speciesist and magic, hold on. <laughs> The, well, I mean, this is all. Oh, yeah, I guess the the, the, the entity, the entity yes. worshiping, the entity engaged in reciprocal worship, and the community around both. Thank you. If so that it was mine. Do that, it's wrong. <laughs> wrong, and and definitely yes. So I was looking at the question and and trying to figure out what I would do, and and so I just started from the actual game of magic, and I said, well, what do I like to do, and. I like to play lands, like as many lands as I can play in a turn. Um, I, I keep a die that my, my land drop counter. Um, so I was going to say something. I was going to say something flippant about well, just play as many lands as you can. And then I realized, thinking about that in fiction, at least in early magic fiction, I don't think Wizards has used this picture of of magic lately. But in the beginning, drawing mana was taking the energy from the land that you're familiar with, the places you've been. And so in fiction, playing a lot of lands would be like traveling and going to see other places. And so I'm like, you know, that actually would be a nice central tenet, at least the the endeavor to journey to different places and to see different different lands. Because don't want to make a requirement of it. It's There's a lot of circumstances in which people can't really travel, but it is a thing that should, you should aim to do i could start a religion and magic what would it be um 
honestly, I think it would definitely be something like, um, what would a tenant be? I mean, I don't know. It's like, in, in the concept of the game, it would definitely be something like, you know, because I like to play white, wide, like, go wide strategies, right? And I like to also play like lands and stuff. I think it would be something very much like what Selenia's got going on or what uh, like a mono white type of like, you know, you if you're all in play together, you get bonuses from commuting, from being together. You, you Like you're stronger together is kind of what like the tenant, like the kind of core ethos I would be going for in a magical religion is like, we're here to help each other, heal each other, and you know prevent damage from your neighbors type of i think that's the kind of religion that i would build it would be a nurturing protecting and give all of your token indestructible religion yeah i was wondering if you would i mean would you end up with convoke as one of your i think convoke is a great mechanic for evoking that kind of communal working together to get something done right or um convoke is good battalion even though it's got the martial name the imagery of all of us going together and having you know benefits come from it it's just really powerful to me like for me religion is not like it's weird because everybody's got this image of eastern religion as being like oh look the solitary monks are their faith that emerges from within they sit and they meditate on mountains and what yeah that's all true but that's the end game that's what you do once you've like escaped society become enlightened or whatever or renounced everything and moved off to the hills and the mountains the rest of us who are in this teeming massive humanity with the 20 billion people who are out there have to work together communally to get things done right like all of our ceremonies and services and stuff are all about bring everybody in the family together and then everybody who's not in the family together who is also basically in the family because you know we kind of live next to each other and that's good enough for us and let's all do something together and make this great and powerful kind of evocation of communal worship and um togetherness kind of brings us a little bit into the topic of what we were going to discuss today um because we're our story that we're using for our basis for the actual lore portion of the show comes from dominaria and it, it comes specifically from the character of gerard it's interesting because um jesus jesus going through trials and ordeals and learning he didn't learn about who he was he always know knew theoretically according to new testament text who he was uh, but wasn't supposed to make a big deal out of it. Like if you if you take the text at its word, the aspect of God that did not understand how to talk to humans had to take a human form and became God's only son, God's self. So I can see the connection between Urza and Bloodlines and Gerard that way. I don't have the thing I need. I'm going to make it. Um, so that part is that part is resonant to me. But Gerard as Christ figure does not work for me because of the way that they are extremely clear in the text that they are just actually putting him through Campbell's hero's journey, which is not the same as a messianic journey. However, Miri is much more clearly a Christ-like figure in the Sun King Christ. But mostly, don't you think Karn is the Messiah? in this story and the story is still going because maybe you're not saving dominaria maybe you're saving the multiverse hmm. i mean i you know karn is karn is specifically a golem which means a very very set of spissings to me but yes. um but we, let, let's roll it back because i have questions because one of the things that people maybe need to understand about a jewish messianic tradition is we don't have one initially when we tried to make a king God didn't want us to have a king. God wanted religion to be religion and people to live with each other 
according to our contractual rules. So God was kind of like pro-socialism. And then people misbehaved so much that basically all of the cries go out from the community, God, you have to give us a king so we're respected like other nations. And remember, this is a concept where we believe that God has to appoint a king for the king to have right to rule. So he appoints Saul. And that doesn't go very well if you read the Bible. Um, the king, he had a system of the initial setup of Israel is a system of judges. The initial system of judges, the first one mentioned is actually Deborah. So it is not a male patriarchal centered thing. And basically people kept whining until they got what the other countries had. So right now we're dealing with a situation where all of the things that a concept of a Messiah is based on is based on a thing that the community and God did not agree on from jump. So that's problem one. Problem two is this. Even the most black hat orthodox people who will make me scream and rant on the internet against you know my group of fanatics, none of us believe in a Messiah that's going to come save us. And we have a reason for that. We have a historical reason for that because that's gone very badly for us in the past. Because um, you can scam an entire group of people once you believe that you have a Messiah who will save you. But even the Lubavitch, the Lubavitch are running around talking to other Jews because they have a belief that if every Jewish woman lights Shabbat candles at the same time, realize they don't have to believe, they just have to be doing the ritual which is important because that doesn't make it less than, it actually makes it more important. If we are all engaged in a specific act of mitzvot, and it's all of the women who are doing it, then we get the Messiah, then we get the Messiah. Messianism is not an original part of Judaism. It got tacked on. We had Messiah and Beeler. That's a different. But once we got it, the conceptualization is when we have achieved a single moment of world peace, then the Messiah can enter. And because the Messiah can enter, then we will have somebody who will help us rule justly. But it's, an, it's a completely earthly priest. It doesn't mean anything for later. It doesn't absolve us of our sins. God can't do that now. So a Messiah is not going to do it later. So you have to think about that in that terms. We have to earn our Messiah. We have to earn the ruler we so desperately wanted that is truly divine. We don't get it until we figure out how to have world peace. That's a, a fundamentally different concept of who's coming. So when you look at it from that lens, Gerard, Gerard can't be the Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, because nobody's earned it, okay? But Karn can be. And Karn can be because the roots of the roots of what will allow salvation are inactive in him, and he can be used for good or ill. But he can be he can be shaped and molded and filled by his own experiences, the intent of being in the world in a way the divine or Urza can't. Um, he can speak to the many things that are in conflict from points of knowing which none of the players in this conflict can. So in that sense, Gerard, Gerard is like Joseph and Karn is the Messiah and Urza is God. So, oh, wait, what? Well, That's Urza, awkward. Well, I mean, but remember, 
I believe on in this conceptualization, if you need a messiah to come out of this and it needs to be and honestly, if it needs to be the white guy, um, because there's no there's no really good reason for that, except this is the dude who's going to be really good with artifacts. So he is a hero. But is Jesus in scripture really a hero? Because I don't think he is. I think I think the concept (laughs) of Messiah is something outside of a hero. So I think Gerard is somebody who's struggling with being, but I think another part of being the Messiah is knowing. Um, Here's the thing. If I were Christian and I were waiting for God to send me Jesus back, Jesus's main function was to speak to the people. And Mr. Rogers existed. And if Jesus is better than Mr. Rogers, um, that's really impressive. I will have to change my current status. But if I were if I were Christian, I would be looking at it and going, I think y'all, I think y'all missed it. I think you weren't paying attention. And he was on That's TV what I've been saying the whole time. <laughs> Mr. Rogers exists, so therefore Mr. Rogers exists, so therefore what he are you doing? Came and went, for? guys. You missed the window. We missed it. <laughs> I mean, he might try again. He he really seems to believe the best in humans, and so like like we might get in, you know, another thousand years, another Mr. Rogers. But when I think of the Jesus of Christian, particularly women, Christian women that I've known and loved who worship with a whole amazing heart, who don't who don't soft sell the problems of the structure that they are in, who still reach out, they are they are lights of God. And I think of them and go, if Jesus exists, he should be so fucking proud that anybody like that is willing to do anything in his name and he better deserve them. If if Mr. Rogers had been Indian, we would have had temples to him already. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> like like this this whole Western idea, the the iconoclasm of the West, which prevents us from celebrating people who are really good at making other people like each other, has been just really, really frustrating. You know, like in terms of like first folks like Mr. Rogers and you know his predecessors who were like, you know, here to give you this kind of continuity of faith tradition, stemming back from Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. Like, we forget these people through history, and then they have to start over from scratch every time because of this iconoclasm that we can only celebrate the the progenitor or the last prophet, if in the case of Islam. And like, that just means that so much institutional knowledge of how to be good to other people gets lost, right? And so when we're talking about things, that's why I really hate, I look, I love the monomyth. I love that idea of the hero's journey, of the pathways you take. But that is a way to study different stories that have been told through history. That is not the tree that you build your story upon. And the problem with the Weatherlight story is decided that the monomyth, which was in vogue in the early 90s, was the best framework for a story there is. So let's just take our story, find people who fit these slots, plug them into the monomyth slots, and then just go to town. And what that means is you get a formula story that doesn't work. And it's a story that is so fixed on trying to hit all these points of like, okay, well, this guy's got to rise up. He's got to hit conflict. He's got to doubt himself. He's got to come back and resurrect and save the world and be the Messiah figure and then die. It's just like, that's, that's how you, you're missing the point, right? Like you are building with the framework, but you're not filling in. You're not coloring inside the lines. You're drawing the outline of the story and then taking that to be the story. And that's why I always thought that the Weatherlight story just sucked 
because of the fact that like even like now Dominaria has gone a long way to fixing that. But the idea, it's just like it's so many holes in this plot and so many um and I don't mean holes in like, oh, this plot doesn't make sense. I mean in the sense of it's a hollow story. It's the semblance of a story. It's the idea of, oh yeah, look, here's the thing. We can map Gerard to Jesus. We can map, you know, all these things people to like their various archetypes. But that doesn't carry any inherent meaning. It doesn't carry any weight because there's nothing there, right? Like there's the bubble outline of who these people are trying to be, but there's no there. One of the things that happens when you write fiction, Gerard actually, and this is where I think Gerard is cool. So you have to understand just because I don't think that he's a messiah figure doesn't mean that he has no value for the things that people would want in a messiah figure. So. Gerard is fighting this destiny because everything about this destiny is about death. Everything about it is a form of selfishness. He is he is forced to be in basically a video game plot. Collect all <laughs> the items, use your special ability, and save the world. And there is a reason that the monomyth is used yep. over and over in game terms. So the challenge I would have for somebody who is you know uh, um and you know everything's so loaded because the discourse is so corrupted by politics so when i say this understand it's with literally no hate in my heart but how amazing would a actual video game based on jesus's type of success so if you have to have the sacrifice at the end right Jesus Jesus went through a whole bunch of adventures. Dante goes through a whole bunch of adventures. You don't have to have you don't have to have the gotta catch them all and then and then turn the switch kind of thing. That's a very modern concept of how to save people. Um, and it's not what Jesus did. And the self-doubt and the monomyth part of Jesus's story does not come from and and here we're going to hit some some hot buttons for me and Shivam which is you don't have to lose anybody Jesus didn't run around losing people until he died everybody lost Jesus right mm. so so the monomyth is also literally in opposition to christian concepts of what made a messiah it was a holy person moving through space trying to trying to talk peace living a bodied life and as a bodied life sometimes it was difficult to to feel the peace that's the interaction with john the baptist that's why he's going through the essenes and the sadduceans and the pharisees because he has to experience all of these splintering groups that disagree with each other to figure out what has value to him and what doesn't and more importantly how to reach them if if jesus is unifier none of those people are not his people all of those people are splintering groups of his people. There's a huge problem with cults at the time that's attributed to Jesus and splinter groups. It's an occupied nation. There's infighting. All of this should sound very familiar. Um, <laughs> all right. So, so, and that I think is what they're trying. I think that's where you can see the story in it. But Gerard fights against the role, which puts him in a very different space than a willing Messiah who's struggling He's an unknowing, he's an unknowing son. So he's hitting a different mythic archetype. Yeah, absolute agreement. Like the thing is, because that's one of the things is that I think there's two things happening here. One is that we are attributing a lot more depth than the authors had the ability to provide us. But also 
I think actually Adrian just cemented it in my head, which is that Gerard isn't necessarily like the the idea of a messiah and archetype. Like when you look at old King Arthur stories, which were very much the or like the Fisher King type of story, that archetype, that that messiah archetype, the the character who is the messiah figure is always walking with this weight. They've got this kind of sorrow around them of this knowledge that they're carrying the salvation or this idea of salvation or the ability to save it. And the people around them are not falling into place or not doing the thing that will allow this salvation figure to actually help them. And so there's this just weight of like every step you take is just sorrow of like everything I am doing to try to help you. And you are not working with me here. And I don't get that from Gerard, right? Like Gerard's kind of like, but I, he feels more like a JRPG. And I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but in the sense of like the hero of the JRPG, the young farm boy who gets up and is like, I'm the hero? What? What do I do? Okay, I guess. And it, he doesn't have the pathos to be a messiah. You know, he doesn't have that that weight of, of carrying this whole load with him. Well, and then from, they try to add calling... it on. Yeah. yeah they add it on by like, all of a sudden out of nowhere, Miri is crushing on him too. Like all women love him and have to die for him. Yeah, that's To just the like point if... where you literally mention it in character as the narrator that that Gerard has to lose them all in order to be able to come what he must. No, it's he's no, trying to run away all. from Urza and Urza's legacy and more death. And you have to kill everybody until you force him into it. That is not the same thing. No, that is not a Messiah at all. That is like the, that is the, that is somebody trying to make a Messiah, right? Like that's like, look, I need you to feel this sadness so that you can do this thing. So damn it, I'm going to kill all the people you love until you're sad. Okay, like, and I actually have a direct quote that I'm going to read from Wrath and Storm. Um, so they just got through telling the story of Mary, and I can go on on a completely different podcast all by itself about how they misuse the shamanistic journey in order to set up her, anybody caring about her caring about Gerard. That's a different issue. But remember that that Wrath and Storm is set up with somebody, mysterious librarian dude, is talking to Ilcaster. And Ilcaster is learning about these people through history. So there's actually a really good framework and metaphor about how do we teach the history of our own people to the generation that's going to come after. And then, so at the beginning of Dawn on page 191, and there's only 193 pages of this story. Beyond the high windows of the library, the soft light of dawn steadily grew. The rumbles of thunder now seemed no more than a distant backdrop across the morning. Amidst the piles of manuscript and tremulously leading books, Ilcaster sat silent, tears streaming down his His breath came in short, sobbing gasps. Before him, the old man also sat in silence. His face, as he gazed at the young man, was filled with compassion. Yet there was in it a kind of watchfulness, as if he were waiting for some thought now barely stirring to burst into full flower. The light brightened slowly, and Ilcaster's sobs grew softer. At last he sniffed, pushed the damp hair from his face, and looked at the librarian. Why? he asked, his voice cracking. Why did she have to die? Why didn't Gerard save her? The silence again lay between the two until the old man laid a hand on Ilcaster's shoulder. Beneath the parchment-like skin, the boy could see the veins, blue as sapphire, and the slender bones, worn and brittle with age. Yet he also saw, for the first time, an inner strength that he had not recognized. I told you, the librarian said quietly, that a hero is not just an accumulation of deeds. He is also one who has sacrificed, who has given up something profoundly important to him. For Gerard, 
Mary's death was the last step on the first stage of his journey. And then I rage quit. And then I rage quit. Because I've been screaming at this the whole time. And I did it. through the book Like That's literally, just in case you weren't sad, let me make sure we show you that the young boy is sad when the old man is teaching him sadness. The old man is teaching him sadness and literally telling him, no, Mary has to die or Gerard can't actually do anything. Like you said, it's that idea that the... (sighs) What we see as the messianic is there has to be suffering. There has to be, you know, like you cannot get there just by journey unless you have that pain. And everybody understands exactly why, what you've given up. And but that's if so Jesus moronic. Is, if oh, yeah. the Ur Messiah, he didn't give up any of that. So this is literally modern Western man going back and looking at its own foundational story, finding it wanting and deciding that we're going to kill a bunch of other people instead so that the Messiah gets to survive at the end and like, just feel bad. Magic does not do faith. Well, magic Magic does does not do religion. Well, but I think we can actually go back to Mary. Mary actually goes through a religious experience to choose a future and a path and a mate. There is no intimation prior that Mary is like, you know, doing the the Google eyes love Gerard thing. She's been his best friend forever. Um, you know, and, and so and so we also have to take a foundational friendship, one of Gerard's three pillars of friendship, and change it into something sexualized or sexual or unrequited. That's not the monomyth, okay? Just That's Campbell, a monomyth. Yeah, the, Joseph Campbell is doing a very specific thing with the monomyth. One of the things that you have to understand is anthropology was heavily compromised by gentlemen adventurers with money initially, because that's who had the money to do it. Um, I can personally tell you right now, as somebody trying to do this study independently, no longer inside an academic space, I don't know how to fund it, but I know that four years isn't enough because the community keeps changing. So if you have the time and the privilege to actually do any kind of studying, it's going to come from capriciousness and arbitrariness because the communities very rarely study their own selves or fund their own self-study. So these people go out and it's a time of exploration and it's absolutely colonialism and imperialism, but but the knowingness of it is not quite what it is now. There's an awareness of misuse and there's counterculture against it, but it, it, it doesn't have the same weight to it that a hundred years of doing it successfully also complete. So there's a group of people who are just beginning to get access to study and they're trying to prove universalism in a very specific way, which is to prove that everybody that's being studied is a full-fledged human, just like the guys studying them. And I mean the guys studying because until Boaz comes and basically fights everybody so that, that Zora Neale Hurston gets to develop um, native anthropology and, and ethnography. That's what we've got. And they're not doing it from no self-interest. They are usually people who are just on the cusp of being accepted in society that come from pre- previously marginalized spaces, which is a thing that's happening in academia now. New people come in go, oh my gosh, this is really bad. But then 80 years later, they're all whitewashed. So all of their ethnicities are erased. They're claimed to be atheists. They're claimed to not have a history. They're lumped in with the same white guys who they were actually fighting against because they bring in the root of the harm to try to disprove the harm. 
You have to state the harm over and over again in order to prove why the harm is being done. And that's, that's the problem with the monomyth. Universalism is incredibly important in the early 20th century because if you don't believe that humans are connected, then you allow a lot of terrible things that were happening afterwards. Um, oh, and it doesn't, it doesn't age well. So the monomyth is one of those where they ta he takes things from all over the world and finds the commonality. And then he will revisit it later and he will complicate it. But that part never gets. Connected. And I'm wondering, I, I would like to, because Shivam, you've mentioned a couple of times now, but just <laughs> the magic staff in general has handled religion, um, the lack of diversity that we've seen, the ways that they've gotten it wrong. And I'm, you could speak a little bit more to that and, and what you think that magic really needs. I mean, we've talked about this throughout the episode, but. Okay, so, so here's, here's the thing. And let me preface this by saying a lot of the people who work on magic are personal friends of mine right? Like I know them, I've known them for years and we are all friendly friends with each other. So with that, like, you know, I could, I don't want somebody to think that, you know, I'm just going to be slandering people here. That's, that's not my intent. But the thing is, and this is just part of gamer culture in America, in the West, is that a lot of these people are atheist and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's like, you know, just part and parcel with gaming culture. But what happens is when you're writing fantasy, Fantasy is inherently not an atheistic uh, tradition, right? Like science fiction tends to be because science fiction is about the human ingenuity with technology over the issues that we are faced with in the world. Fantasy is always about kind of the externalism of relying upon the divine, upon the mystical, upon these powers that we have that are given to us either by, uh, you know, external divinity or by external forces that allow us to have this inherent ability. And so part of that is that there's a certain level of religiosity that comes along with when you're writing fantasy that makes it good. Like one of the best fantasy writers out there right now is uh, Brandon Sanderson, who's a devout Mormon. Now, like leaving aside any issues you may or may not have with that particular faith, being of a faith of a devout kind of standing that gives you this ability to worship, to pray, to have the, uh, you know, the spiritual experience, the, the numinousness of being able to experience a divinity lets you write a character or create characters from that perspective so that when you're creating your character who's telling the story, you know kind of what that experience is like. And you're looking at it in a non-cynical way, right? So you're looking at like, oh, uh, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to like, let me just take, for instance, one of my favorite um, stories until it wasn't uh, Gideon meeting Oketra, right? Gideon meeting Oketra for the first time he hears this calling in his head. He feels this like thrumming through his body of this divine experience. Of, he doesn't know what it is because he doesn't. The last time he had a God deal with him went terribly badly, you know, right? Like uh, him and Helio didn't get along. And so Gideon is sitting here like, what is this feeling? What is this sense of wholeness, this sense of completeness that I've got going on? There's this genuine exploration and this joy that you see because the person who wrote that story was a person of religious uh, background, somebody who had faith, who knew what it was like to experience and kind of channel the divine. A lot of the times, and like, for instance, one of the current writers in magic, James Wyatt was a former um, and is sometimes still a, a priest in the Methodist church, right? Like he sits and he does sermons and lectures and he's a minister, absolutely wonderful guy. And he wrote for D and D for 20 years, which made a really a lot of really, really good and fascinating moments. But um, well, the thing is, though, like a lot of the people who wrote the story are 
atheists and some of them are anti-theists, right? Like there's a difference between passive atheism, I don't believe in God, and active anti-theism. God is not only not real, but is actively harmful to society. And when you have that kind of anti-theistic idea, you can, when you're writing a theological story, your inherent, like, I guess the take that you're starting with, the position you're starting with, is not that religion is something of hope, of optimism, of unity, of a strength that you don't have that lets you get through the world. It is instead something that is controlling you, something that is uh, misguiding you, something that is deluding you from the reality that you're stuck in, and then is leading you down a path that will lead to your destruction, right? Like, I'm not saying that this is not true of religion. I'm not saying that all religion is great. But when everybody writing the religion in Magic the Gathering is coming from that angle. So you, do you guys remember the expansion, The Dark? Mm-hmm. So The Dark was created entirely by Jesper Mirfors. Jesper is, was the first art director of uh, Magic the Gathering. And uh, he created the, for instance, the mana symbols and the original basics. Um, and he is a very much an anti-theater person. And he created The Dark entirely as a set standalone that has no relation to any story or nothing, but with the idea of being able to just make a set where he's like, everything is about like the evils of religion. That was like, he did an interview. He was like, I wanted to show off how terrible religion is. So I made this whole set about it. For instance, you see things like the inquisition in there. You see like preacher, which steals your, it's like the white card that steals your characters, uh, your creatures permanently, you know, like it's got all of this horrific kind of just like, uh, imagery and sentiment about the, the fact that there's no value in religion. And from that starting point, magic has never had, except for that one story where Gideon Mita Kekra has never had a scene of religion, of being of value, of hope, of bringing anything good to the characters who are religious. It's always been a crutch that has brought them down or has been something that has been used to bludgeon them or to hobble them from being able to express themselves or they're shown that their deity is actually Soren Markov, the selfish vampire, who's just like, you know, harvesting them for blood. Or Nicol Bolas, who is just like, you know, a self-absorbed demon, right? And He like, just wants to read his books. I have to, I'm contractually obligated to say that. Which I makes him a very too. Jewish demon, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> no, because that's what our demons do. Like, every every human being... Satan's a lawyer, that's all it's Well, saying. we don't have a Satan, so we're, we're a little stuck that way. But we do, each of us, each human has at their left hand 100,000 demons, and at their right hand 10,000. So there's a whole lot of demonology in Judaism that got very, very quietly shushed about, <laughs> about the 1800s when Enlightenment era came. And we've always had an Enlightenment era rationalist movement. So that's always been a conflict inside Judaism because we're very Azorius. Not that you could tell by anything that's ever written about Azorius, <laughs> but fine, because that'll be my rant. But uh, but all of that aside, like we have, we can't feel the demons if something is happening and the demons world is interfering with our world. Something has gone horribly wrong. But the demons have the same contract with the divine that we do. It's just the demon contract. They're not allowed to screw with it too much. And every now and then a human wants something from them. And they're like, you're interrupting our studies. We're trying to figure out these rules. If you don't go away, we're going to eat you. And then, you know, whoever it is will continue to pester the demons and then the demons will try to eat them. And then everybody is upset. But like, you're interrupting the demon study. That's a sin. You shouldn't do that. I would just like to state unequivocally that having Adrian on the show has been the best idea we have ever had. (laughs) 
this completely <laughs> supports everything I have ever said about Nicol Bolas, that we wouldn't be having the problems we had right now if he had just been allowed to be left alone and read his books. There's a Damn reason sense. that his artwork changed so much, and it's because people wouldn't leave him alone. Okay, but he was born actually trying to genocide humans. Uh, you know, that's that's retconning. That is <laughs> retconning, and I am not here for it. I, oh, but, okay. Then at least we can be on the same page there. Goodness. But the thing is, though, the, the point I was trying to make is that you'll notice <laughs> that the story immediately after Gideon's actual one divine revelation has Aketra slaughtered in front of him, because even that can't happen. Because magic will not allow religion to have any positive imagery anywhere. I mean, it's just we, not allowed. Or Zod is every, the best Magic we have. makes every religion a construct. So you've got angels, but angels don't get... Angels, the way that they are perceived, could be very Judaic holy sparks, but they're really not. The way they've written they're angels and demons... They're just constructs. They're fables. They're, they're golems. They're yes, golems they're exactly of golems. Mana. And I, I am pissed about it. Yeah, that and is I, 100% yeah. true. There's like, there's no... I mean, and look, like... What do we have right now in War of, War of the Spark promotional art? The five gods of Amon, I'm sorry, four of the gods of Amonkhet as zombies. Because yeah. guess what? It wasn't enough that we killed them. We had to rub it in as well. It's yeah, Bolas like, is not winning points for this. It's like, my whole thing is like, look, then the, we got to Kaladesh and I was like, all right, maybe we'll do spirituality. Maybe we'll get some positivity. <sighs> no, not only did we not get spirituality, we got literally, like, they were so afraid of even having the chance of possibly having anything that they just straight went to literal full on technology, which is the exact opposite of any kind of spiritual everything. Like all of the magic in Kaladesh comes from the machines, comes from us recycling dead, like sentient beings into fuel and then turning them into our powers. Right? Like that's what silent mana is. is people. It's like, that's what energy is. <laughs> energy is like literally just your sentient goddamn neighbor. Turn it to your gas engine. Right, like, which is fine it, for Golgari. That's a religion for them. Right, but not, but not everybody. But not the, the point universe. though is that literally, magic goes out of its way, in canon, out of canon, over and over and over to try to emphasize that literally nothing is worth believing in Ever. because everything you believe in is fake. It is a simulacrum. It is a. Uh, the Demiurge sent here to delude you. It is entirely the world of Maya that we live in, that everything is an illusion. The only thing is real is your pure secular logical being. And that's only until you fuck yourself, right? Like, it's... And one of the reasons one of the reasons I'm so mad about the Soren storyline, because I'm sure if you're online at all, you've seen me whine about uh, Nahiri and Soren, is because Soren could have been a messiah figure was set up to be a messiah figure, had created an act of loving devotion, and they decided that they were actually going to use like a hentai tentacle animal in order to actually be the real god. There's this beautiful, there's this beautiful painting in Barter for Blood where it looks like he's just an incredibly violent George Washington. His his group would not behave in a way that allowed for everyone to exist. He couldn't save his plane because their greed was extending things. That's your Old Testament Messiah with some smiting. It's not Gerard. It's not suffering. It's not everybody has to die and you have to suffer. It's, it's that act of 
oh my gosh, I have to save people. If you're going to go violent, it looks like Soren killing off his own bloodline in order to protect the plane and the innocence on it. It's not a perfect innocence. It's a food chain innocence. But I'm a hardcore monotheist. My God holds both the good and the evil. I don't have extra gods on the side. I'm right it. here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, this? so mine is, there's a, a, Elohim is a plural non-gendered word. And when I pray, I use the word Elohim. I was taught that. I have a very folkloric, weird history with my own religion that is a different show. But um, but the reality is that it holds more, like the divine holds more than just one single mm. God entity. And so God, God can be many entities. And sometimes my God is a smitey God. And you could have had this amazing story of a suffering God, a suffering Messiah in Soren, and you threw it away for like baby daddy texts. I don't understand. Like I, that I exactly 100% agree with you in the sense that like, it felt like it was being set up for this entirely perfect, like kind of sorrow and redemption arc of, of Soren being able to sit there and go like, because remember Soren's a multicolored creature. He's black and white and yeah, he's a vampire, but he also cares about his people. You know, he does. But how about that? How about the fact that the one kind of like really genuinely caring godlike creature is also a vampire who survives off of his creations? What does it's that tell you about religion? But even that was even that was amazing because he was involuntarily put there. That's much more Christ-like. Soren didn't yes. ask to be a vampire. His grandfather forced him to be there. So so even then, even like if you want the complexity, Soren had all of it. I agree. And you threw it all away. And this and is why I mean that's why Anguished on Making had been such an like an amazing card for oh me. Oh god. And even the, the name Anguish. The, the, the name, the art, and the flavor text of that. I mean, that is a Vorthos hit right there to me. Because... It is, but like how much better would it have been if the reason if the reason weren't the actual god that you made the indefinable entity that are tentacle monsters from Kaiju? Not to mention Cthulhu is not exactly the source point material you're looking for, right? Like that Hell guy yeah. weirdly racist <laughs> and psycho, and let's not, let's not. Oh, but... and then you, and then you take two of the angels that little girls were all using to make their commander decks and learn how to play with, and then you made them tentacle monsters because that doesn't have any bad associations. Yeah, it's yeah. just so weird. the closest that they have to anything like a god. No matter how much they complain about, oh, old planeswalkers were too much like gods, therefore they were unrelatable. Like the entire history of Greek Western mythos doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't even know how you come to that statement to be able to say it out loud, but okay. I'll accept that and move on. But they they didn't know how to write for it because they don't understand power. So I haven't answered what my foundational tenet of a religion for magic would be. <laughs> but I'm going to Did now. you have a plot for this podcast? Because you sure don't now. No, no, I, 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 I'm pretty good you at bringing know. it back. But here is mine, and I think that this is a good place to point it out. In my religion... The population knows that there are planeswalkers and blind eternities, and they are the ones who wander, and you wait for them to come back. But magic is real, and it's real in a myriad of ways, and it comes from the land. And so my religion, the tenet of my religion, is the intersections of power and the holiness of waiting. That's our show. You can find the podcast at GoblinLorePod on Twitter or email any questions, comments, or concerns to GoblinLorePodcast at gmail.com. 
If you would like to support your friendly neighborhood gobslugs, you can do so at patreon.com slash goblinlorepod. This episode of Goblin Lore was hosted by Hobbs Q, who you can find on Twitter at Hobbs Q. This episode was co-hosted by Alex Newman, who you can find on Twitter at Alexander New M. Writing, producing, engineering, editing for this episode is by Joe Redman, who you can find on Twitter at Findhorn. That's F-Y-N-D Horn. Our music is by Wintergotten, who you can find at Wintergotten.com. That's Winter, G-A-T-A-N.com. Logo by Stephen Raphael on Twitter at Stephen Raffle. Goblin Lore is presented by Hipsters of the Coast, which you can find at hipstersofthecoast.com. Thank you all for listening, and remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers.